Good morning. There it is. All right, we're ready. Have you been reading in the book of Acts? A week ago, I got an email. <clears throat> and the gist was, uh, all right, I've taken the challenge. And uh, my friend was reading in the book of Acts, <laughs> but I got a kick out of it. He, he'd already read it once, and he was already into his second reading. And he thought that I had meant, you know, like read the book of Acts three times this week. Which I think was, which would be cool. <laughs> but I was just thinking, you know, read it once while we're going through the maybe twice or three times or more, you know. But uh, he really took the challenge. He was being an animal about it. <laughs> I got another email, and it too professed to be reading through the book of Acts. said, you know, I'm reading through the book of Acts, and then this, uh, this question, why don't we speak in tongues? So I answered in the email, but I think that's a question that we all have. Why don't we speak in tongues? If not those specific words, I think there's a greater concern or a deeper concern that lies beneath that question. If I were to kind of get at that concern, one that touches me personally, and to put it into the form of a question, I would, I would pose it this way. Why aren't Christians today more like the Jesus people of Acts? Why isn't the Holy Spirit more apparent in the church, the Jesus people today? I believe the answer is found in various places in the New Testament, but never clearer or more completely than in the passage we're looking at this morning, which is Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 41. If you'd let me preach until 1, I'd read the whole passage. But since I'm not going to read the whole passage, let's read the first 12 verses of uh, Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost came, we talked a little about Pentecost last Sunday. You'll recall it's a large festival and it will account for the many nationalities and tribes and peoples that are mentioned in these verses. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. So we're thinking, just as we did in chapter 1, about 120 Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages, other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. 
Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Well, I'm going to answer that, but before I do, just a little preparatory background. I want to look briefly at the the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God in the life of Jesus. And then I want to use an expression of Jesus Himself to give us a glimpse of the Holy Spirit of God in the work of others than Jesus before Jesus, just as background to chapter 2. This is only going to take a minute or two. So now is not the time to go to the Bahamas. <laughs> a brief overview of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' life. First, it was the Spirit who gave Jesus birth. In Luke chapter 1, verse 35, the angel Gabriel says to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, Mary was found with child by the Holy Spirit. In Matthew 1.20, to Joseph, the angel reports that the child conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. A second thing about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of Jesus, it was the Spirit who equipped Jesus for ministry. At His baptism, the Spirit came upon Jesus in all of the Spirit's fullness in power. It is described as coming not like a forceful wind with fire-like tongues, but like a dove. And the very servant of God, isolated and emphasized in Isaiah chapter 40 through 55, begins with recognizing Jesus as the servant of God. Behold my servant, I have put my spirit upon him. Isaiah 42, verse 1. 
No person, not even the Son of God, is equipped to do God's work without God's Spirit. Luke tells us that Jesus was full of the Spirit in Luke chapter 4, verse 1. And later in that same context, in chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, Jesus stands up in the synagogue and reads Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for prisoners, sight for the blind, liberty for the oppressed, to proclaim the Lord's favor. And then he sits down And in verse 21, he says, Today, the Scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. A third thing about the ministry of the Spirit in the life of Jesus. It was the Spirit who empowered Jesus. Jesus, and there are many references, but I want to draw your attention to just one. It's mentioned in Matthew, it's mentioned in Luke, it's mentioned in Mark. In Mark and in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 28 for the wording, if by the Spirit of God I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In Luke... Chapter 11, verse 20, it's not the Spirit of God that Jesus uses. It's the finger of God. I think Jesus used those expressions interchangeably. But what's interesting is what I want to do here is show us very briefly how this expression, in a way, gives us an overview of the power and the breadth of the Spirit's work before Jesus, among His people, in Scripture, in history. Because this expression, by the finger of God, is used in connection with God's activity in three ways. The first connection is found in Psalm chapter 8. Verse 3, God's creation is called the work of God's fingers. And we know from Scripture that the Spirit of God is at work in creation and recreation. A second connection is God's law. The revelation of God's will. And specifically, it is connected with the giving of the tablets of the law in Exodus chapter 31, verse 18, and Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 10. We're told that the law is written by the finger of God. And yet in Scripture, We see the Spirit of God at work in revealing God's will and truth to people, as well as enabling them to recognize it 
when faced with it. A third connection is God's power. All those are expressions of His power, but when we think of those extraordinary, rather attention-getting, God only could do this kind of power, we think of the plagues, for example, and it is in this connection that the finger of God is used, where the agents of Pharaoh say, is this not the finger of God? And yet in Scripture, we see the Spirit in action in like wondrous acts of God's power, as well as equipping and enabling people. The Spirit of God in the Old Testament came upon great people, kings, leaders, especially prophets. To avail them to move with God and accomplish His purposes. But we see in all these three connections and the broader work of the Spirit, we see it all resident in Jesus Christ. The creation, recreation, we see it in Jesus Christ. We see the revealing authority of the Spirit's work connected with the revealing of His will, of His Word, of His ways, of His purposes. And we certainly see that this is only a God thing kind of power in Jesus. We don't see that resident in any person or any, if you will, Tom, Dick, and Harry or Mary, Jane, or Sally. And that's significant because we see that Jesus is God's unique, unparalleled, unrivaled work of salvation. And because this is so, it changes how we look at all that God has done and all that God will do. How we read the beginnings and how we read the endings. Jesus is the turning point in God's writing of history. And we get this from the very first Jesus people. We get it right here in Acts chapter 2. We get it reflected in the entire New Testament. When they look back over what God has done, it comes into focus. It makes sense. It is coherent because of Jesus. And when they look into the future and they think about the finish and the completion, the unfolding, but also the fulfilling of God's work, it's all clear because of Jesus. And we understand that. Because we who know Him, we who walk after Him, we who follow Him, we experience that too. What we don't always see is this. The decisive outcome of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and exaltation was the unique, unparalleled, unrivaled outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon His people. In fact, 
What I had said just before that about seeing the Old Testament, seeing the past clearly, and seeing the future more clearly, that's the very work of the Holy Spirit. It's a very evidence that the Spirit was poured. It came with the pouring of the Holy Spirit. And why is this all true? Because the Holy Spirit poured out on His people is the very Spirit of Jesus Christ. And we'll see that more clearly as we go. Let me try to explain it even more plainly. But I'm going to have to do a little bit of theologizing here. A little bit. In the human sphere, the Holy Spirit in Jesus glorified the Father. The Spirit was most prominent in Jesus because Jesus gave the Father preeminence in His life. You know, for example, you can see this ever so profoundly in the Gospel of John. If you were to just read the Gospel of John, see, look at me, I'm just piling it on. Acts, the Gospel of John. Well, put it on your reading list. But if you read the Gospel of John, you might be somewhat surprised to hear Jesus say things like this. And sometimes we don't even hear him really saying it. We just gloss, we slide right over it. He'll say, everything that I say, I have heard the Father say. My teaching is not my own. It's what I have heard the Father teach. Everything I do, I do not on my own authority, but only the authority which the Father has given to me. I don't come in my own name. I come in the name of Him who sent me. I do not glorify myself. I came to glorify the One who sent me. If you believe in me, you believe not in me, but in the One who sent me. That's giving the Father preeminence. And that is where the power comes from in His life. That unleashes the Spirit because the Spirit in Jesus Christ was all about enabling, equipping, empowering Jesus to point people unto the Father. To reveal the Father. Now, in the human sphere, the Holy Spirit in you glorifies Jesus. The Spirit is most prominent in you because when you give Jesus preeminence in your life. When we're more about Him, the Spirit is all over that. But when it's all about me, that's what Paul calls quenching the Spirit, grieving the Spirit. Paul says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Ponder that. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3. 
Here in Acts, the Holy Spirit is poured out. And what's it all about? It's about, hey, I've got the Spirit. Look at me. It's all about Jesus. It's all about the preeminence of Jesus. It's all about who Jesus is and what he has done and what he will do for you if you come in contact not with me, but with him. That's preeminence. It is paramount dignity. It is status. It is importance. Jesus is lifted up in all that they say and do because they want people not to look at them, but to look at Jesus. And that's what the Holy Spirit is all about doing too. And so when life becomes it's all about me, you may over time say, where did the Holy Spirit go? But if you start saying it's all about Him, you're going to see the Spirit show up and take you places you've never been. And that's what we see in Acts 2. The Holy Spirit is prominent. This is the main point. Prominent where Jesus is preeminent. Prominent, you know, noticeable, apparent, conspicuous. Do you see the Spirit? No, they didn't see the Spirit in Acts 2. You don't see the wind. This is Jesus' own analogy in John chapter 3, verse 8. He said the wind is the spirit is like the wind. And that's a good play on words because in Greek the word spirit and wind and breath are all the same word. But the presence and the effects of the spirit are noticeable, apparent, and they they grow, they find more space. The Spirit has room to flex His muscles when you and I make Christ preeminent, giving Him paramount rank and dignity and importance. Well, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is all about Jesus in Acts 2. And the Spirit is the evidence that He is preeminent. You and I cannot add to the preeminence of Jesus Christ. You and I are not going to make Him more the Son of God because we believe it. We're not going to make Him more the Lord because we believe it. He is preeminent. And that is the starting place of all this. But the very experience and outpouring of the Holy Spirit is the evidence that He has died, risen from the dead, been exalted and glorified. And that's what this message will be all about in this passage. In the first 11 verses, and I'm just going to go over this very briefly, the unmistakable event is about Jesus in verses 1 through 11. It's meant to certify the reality of what Jesus had promised. 
It's not the pattern for your experience and mine. In fact, in verse 38, 39, 40, there are going to be people who receive Jesus Christ. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But they don't start speaking in other languages. Have you ever thought about it? The fact that the, that the Holy Spirit was more prominent in Jesus than any other human being ever. And I don't know of any case where he spoke in other languages. It was not the hallmark of the Spirit in his life. The Spirit is going to show up in ways that I'll talk about a little bit later, but it's always going to be about Jesus. If it's about you, you know, if, if you, I don't know if you'd, what is it, the Magnificent Four? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I need an earpiece here. I'd look a lot more knowledgeable. What is it, you know, you're like these superheroes, there's four of them. Fantastic Four. It's not that I didn't see the movie once, but the Three Stooges. I, I'm already there. I'm trying to get to the other. The Fantastic Four. You know, it's not like the fifth fantastic superhero is going to be someone who can speak other languages. But I mean, sometimes I, we do. We have this yearning. We want to be swept away. We want the Spirit to come on us with such power. We want Him to carry us along. Well, I'm trying to tell you, you want to see more of that happen in your life? Put Jesus first in your life. Make Him preeminent. Set your mind on Him. Be about exalting Him in your life and with what you say and what you do. There's an entire ethic right there. There's an entire disposition for life. And the Spirit will show up and He'll be evident to others. It's not about you and me. He didn't come here to glorify me. Or you. And there is this evidence. It was supposed to be unmistakable so that they would know that the promise had been fulfilled. And it is. It's a one-of-a-kind event. And the wind moving in their midst and the tongues of flame. They're like dollops of fire. Like, like, like. Because you can never get your, your vocabulary around the work of the Holy Spirit. But something remarkable happens and they start speaking in other languages. And this moving of the wind draws a crowd and they begin speaking to the crowd and the crowd says, aren't these all Galileans? They're there too. For during those times with Jesus, as we saw last Sunday, and also there to remain for the coming of the Spirit. But notice verse 11. Because it is in verse 11 that the point, I think, is really made. Don't miss this. We hear them declaring God's mighty deeds in our own tongues in our own dialects. Now this describes, by the way, these are Gentiles who have converted to Judaism. These are all Jews or proselytes. 
those who had converted to Judaism from all over the known world, the Parthian and Roman Empire, dispersed here. And they hear these various exaltations of God and His works. Now, exactly, it is not specified, but it prepares us for, I think, the answer of what they, the kinds of things they were hearing, and that is the message to come. And they say, what does this all mean? Now, there were others that hear languages they don't recognize, and they think, these guys are just drunk. And so Peter stands up in their midst in verse 14, and what is the message all about? It's all about Jesus. In verses 14 through 21, he gives an answer to what this means. He goes back to Joel, and he says, particularly in verses 16 through 21, the great days which the prophets promised and dreamed of have come. The new age that they were looking forward to has arrived. It's dawned. It's here. And Peter and these first Jesus people, the infant church, are experiencing what the prophets looked forward to. And the people there are witnessing the fulfillment of prophecy. And Peter is speaking. And the things that they dreamt of, the things that they prophesied about, are being fulfilled in their midst. And with this, prophecy itself has begun again. That which had ceased, what the people yearned for, they are hearing. Peter himself is prophesying. He is declaring, this is the day of salvation. And this new age, which will unfold, will involve the fulfillment of all that is listed in Joel 2. Look at verses 22 through 35. So he answers the question, what does this mean? And he answers the question, uh, are these guys really drunk? Uh, Not on wine. On what God's doing, if anything. And in verses 22 through 35, he gives a fuller explanation. And this is really going to rock their world. He says, the new age has come through this very same Jesus of Nazareth. And it's important. He has to say Jesus of Nazareth because there were a lot of Jesuses in the crowd. It was a very common name. It was a good name. It means Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. And so good Jewish people would name their kids that. But not... Every Jesus was Jesus of Nazareth. He had a reputation. They knew, many of them who had gathered knew. He was the one who had been viewed as a criminal, put to death as a criminal, done away with, finished, kaput. And now Peter is saying, this new age has come through this very same Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, who was crucified. This very Jesus, God, has raised from the dead. 
and exalted. He is now at the right hand of God. He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit. Look at verse 33. Now, I've already shown you that the Spirit was all over the life of Jesus. When it says that He has received the promised Spirit, this doesn't mean that in His experience the Father is giving Him the fulfillment of this promise. No, it is that in His exaltation now, in His glorification The Spirit has, the promise of the Spirit, which Jesus said back in Luke 24, again in Acts 1, where he talked to the disciples, he says, the promise of the Father, you're to wait for the promise of the Father. You will be clothed with power from on high, which is where the wind came from. And in chapter 1, he says, you will be baptized. Baptized, clothed, filled. There's not one way of trying to describe the influence and presence and operation of the Holy Spirit. But these are good biblical ways of understanding it. But what we have in verse 33 is not the expression of of the Spirit being fulfilled to Jesus, but in its fulfillment of the promise. And in its fulfillment, notice these words. He. Who is He? He is Jesus. He has poured out what you now see and hear. This would not have happened had Jesus not been raised, exalted, and glorified. And He now pours out the Spirit because the Spirit is the evidence of what? That He has been raised, exalted, and glorified. That He is preeminent. This Jesus, verse 36, is Lord and Messiah. That's what Christ means. It's not a personal name. It means Messiah. The Anointed One of Israel. And now, exalted at the right hand of God, which to the Jews would bring to mind the position of shared deity and divine favor. He whom, you see, they regarded as a criminal, whom they drove to the cross, whom they sought to eliminate, is none other than the divine and royal Son of God. This sermon is all about the preeminence of Jesus Christ. And they get that. And they say, what are we to do? And here we really see the Spirit as encourager. I mean, we see him as the evidence. He's the expositor. He illumines Peter. But he's also the encourager, for lack of a, of a better word, who gives preeminence to Jesus Christ. They ask, and this answer to them is given. It really is, what does this mean for me? And what is the answer? It's all about Jesus. The event 
the message, the answer to the fundamental question is all about Jesus. They're cut to the heart, convicted of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And in verse 38, Peter answers, Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. It's not the water. It's not the baptism of John. It's not entering the waters for ritual purification like the Jews would do in a mikvah, although it might have taken place in a mikvah. What distinguishes this baptism is that it is in the name, that is, in the preeminent authority of Jesus Christ. Pay attention when you read through Acts to the many uses of the word name. Everything's in the name of Jesus, especially in these opening chapters. When you repent, you do so on God's terms. The word repent itself has a very broad and general use. It means to have a complete change of heart. It's a turning around. It's a 180. And when you repent before God, then you repent. You take a 180 on His terms, not your own terms, or you're not repenting before God. You're repenting before yourself or someone else. When you repent before God, you repent on His terms. You say, God, you're God. I'm not going to be God anymore, and I'm going to do things your way. That's what repentance is about. But notice here, this repentance is in different terms. This repentance is in the terms of Jesus. You see, God has pulled it all together and made Jesus the focus of His saving plan, His saving economy. And you see it right here. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Messiah. It's not in the water or we'd bottle it. It's in the preeminence of Jesus Christ. You say, well, Paul talks so much about faith. Well, how do you demonstrate faith? How do you demonstrate that you trust Him? Or how do you demonstrate that you believe in Him? These people who said, what must I do? They demonstrated the preeminence of Jesus Christ by repenting and entering the waters of baptism in the name of Jesus Christ. They were saying, I put my faith, I put my trust, I give my life to Jesus Christ, because there is no one other after hearing what I have heard about Him and witnessing what I have witnessed about Him, there is no one else worthy to give my life to, to give my faith to, to put my trust in. And what does Peter say? Your sins will be forgiven, and the Holy Spirit will come upon you. What happens when the Spirit comes upon you? Very quickly. You're going to have to move fast with me, but it's in your notes. Because I want to answer, I mean, we've seen that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is about the preeminence of Jesus. 
But what does this mean for me? What does this mean for you? Well, I want to take us to John 14 through 16. And I'm not going to read all the verses, but I just want to draw your attention to just a couple of quick points. And then you can read the passages and reflect upon them more deeply. But the characterizations of the Holy Spirit from the Gospel of John in those three chapters, 14, 15, 16, the upper room where Jesus is with His disciples, and He talks to them about the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is called the paraclete. Now, you're not going to find that in your translation. That's kind of an English, English uh, form of the Greek, parakletos, paraclete, paraclete. You're going to find it translated Something like this, helper? Wow, isn't that a cool... I mean, just think about that. The Holy Spirit is your helper. The Holy Spirit is the helper. Some of you are going to find the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, translated helper. Some of you are going to find it translated counselor. Wouldn't you like to have a counselor? You ever been sued? I'll tell you, if you have a good lawyer, it brings a lot to the table for you in your disposition and outlook hope, and peace. Um, What's another one? Um, Advocate would be another. Now, helper, counselor, advocate, intercessor would be another that has been used. These don't tell you the whole story, but they start to help you see that paraclete was a term that was rich in meaning. Not one English word can translate it. But listen, what every good scholar would do, every good Bible student would do, would go to all the places where the word paraclete is talked about by Jesus and look at what he says about the paraclete to better understand the way he uses the word. And I want to show you a couple of quick things. First of all, in John 14, verses 15 through 18, we see that the paraclete is the substitute for Jesus. Let me show you something. In verse 16 of chapter 14, Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another. Now, this translation, the NIV, says counselor. But if it says counselor, then it says Jesus was a counselor. And the point is is that Jesus was a paraclete to the disciples while he was with them on earth. And he says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to be my replacement. I'm going to send another paraclete. That is beautiful. That is so profound. And in chapter 14, verse 16, it's clear that the Spirit will be with us and not leave us. Jesus must return to the Father. He must go away. That really troubles the disciples. He talks about leaving when He talks about death and going to the Father. But He says, listen, the Spirit will come and it's going to be my very presence with you to put it in. I mean, really, when when you want to know, is the Holy Spirit at work here? Is this person talking really, you know, possessed or controlled or influenced by the Holy Spirit? I'll tell you how to know the Jesus character of it and the Jesus content of it. If it isn't about Jesus and it doesn't have the heart of Jesus, then it's not His Holy Spirit. I hope I'm making this case clear or convincing you of this. 
Maybe you know all this already. And I'm just giving you some validation for it. You need to take this to heart. In chapter 14, verses 24 through 27, a little later in your passage there, and then again in chapter 15, verse 26, we're told that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth. And we think, wow, truth, that's a big... How do you get your arms around that? Jesus earlier in the passage said, I'm the way and the truth and the life. This is almost like saying the Spirit of truth is the Spirit of Jesus. Because the Spirit is all about the truth, and the truth is all about, ultimately, Jesus. And the Spirit will guide and reveal. He is life, as we see in chapter 16, verses 7 through 16. He's going to teach us and remind us of what Jesus said in verse 26. Look at real quick. Almost finished. But the Counselor, or Paraclete, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name. In My name. Don't miss that. Will teach you all things. Will remind you of everything I have said to you. And look real quickly at John 16, verses 7 through 16. The Spirit will do what Jesus did. He's going to cause people to recognize sin, righteousness, and judgment. And the Spirit will glorify Jesus because the Spirit communicates only what He has received from Jesus. Verses 13 through 15. In other words, this is very clearly taught even as I've illustrated at points, just as Jesus gave preeminence to the Father, the Spirit in you will give preeminence to Jesus Christ. And why? Because He's the source of salvation. Yours and anyone around us. They, you know, we want people to come in contact not with me per se, but Jesus. And so, is the Spirit prominent when we lie? Where's Jesus when we lie? Conversely, is the Spirit prominent when Jesus fills our, our mind and heart, when He gives us perspective, when His, His love determines our outlook on others, when the hope that comes with knowing Him and thinking about Him determines our disposition, and so forth, and so forth, and so forth. Will you do miracles? Will you foretell the future? Will you have the boldness of the apostles? Will you heal the sick? I can't answer that. I'm not opposed to that one bit. But I know this. If you become the agent of miracles and healings, it will all be all about Jesus Christ. It will be all about Him and not about you. And that kind of miraculous work of the Spirit that is so apparent and noticeable will always be, if it's of the Spirit, it will always be because Jesus is preeminent. No one can say Jesus is Lord except 
by the Spirit of God. Will you stand with me? Next week, I'm going to be much shorter. And I'm going to have more illustrations, so don't miss it. It'll be just as scriptural. I had to really lay some foundational stuff. I know this is chewy. And uh, right now, it's just like you've been chewing. You've got a big mouthful of peanut butter or something. But listen, I'm going to close in prayer. I know the Spirit is at work where Jesus is given priority and central place. And He's speaking to you. If God has spoken to you and you'd like to pray with me or one of the other pastoral staff, one of the elders or their wives, we invite you to come. Because after I pray, Brian's going to play some music. And if the Spirit is prompting you to come forward and pray with one of us, we invite you to do that. Let me pray for us and you're dismissed. God, how gracious, how wonderful. Oh, Holy Father, thank You for Your Spirit poured out on us, distinctive of the incredible, miraculous, unparalleled, unique work of salvation in Jesus Christ. This week, may we give greater place to Jesus and find that the Spirit shows up in greater and greater ways in our life. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. God bless you. This has been a production of Grace Community Church of Visalia. For more information, go to our website at www.gccvisalia.org or for more sermons, go to gccvisalia.org slash podcast.